on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. There's nothing wrong with the ego. The ego has been demonized by a lot of different New Age communities and spiritual teachings and just the phrasing, the association of the ego is is quite negative. But the ego is just the construct that allows you to navigate in this realm. Like the ego is the vessel builder that allows you to actually engage in any particular way. But what's happened as we've moved through life is that we experience some sort of painful experience that isn't allowed to complete its full cycle and properly discharge as it would if it wasn't inhibited. It gets stored in the system and then we develop what's called a compensatory action or behavior. And that's what we build our personalities, our identities on top of. Actually, we're armoring up so that we don't need to go back to that sensation that was inherently overwhelming, which felt like if we felt that thing, we would die. Mm. And so we develop all of these coping mechanisms to avoid these things that we carry inside of us. And that becomes our personality. That becomes our identity. And so we have to actually disassemble that structure and as we disassemble that structure, all of those suppressed and repressed aspects of ourselves actually come up. They surface to be felt and to be expressed and to be discharged. And then we're left in kind of a fluid place where we can now craft a new consciousness structure, a new vessel that can carry and guide and direct consciousness in a different liberated way. What does it mean to be a man today? The toxic patterns of masculinity are being challenged, and new pathways are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric uncertainty, how might we look to the old mythologies for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculinities. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Deus Fortier, a multifaceted artist, men's coach, and ceremonial facilitator. He is a firekeeper and drummer for the Blackfoot Sundance in southern Alberta, as well as an initiate of Kriya Yoga, a comprehensive spiritual science founded by Paramahansa Yogananda of the ancient Swami order. Since 2007, Deus has been working intimately with entheogens and plant medicines, which is how I had the opportunity to experience the psychedelic 5-MeO-DMT. I'm grateful to call Deus one of my closest friends, and this interview follows a powerful one-on-one -on -one ceremony he offered me with the medicine. I can say without hesitation, it was the most intense experience of my life. Our conversation here is recorded in the late afternoon, with the spirit of the journey still with me. We cover potent ground, including Deus' journey as a spiritual seeker with a deep yearning to understand consciousness. We talk about the power of liberating the intelligence of emotions and the nature of healing trauma. And finally, we cover the dangers and possibilities of intentional psychedelic ceremony, ending with a fierce, original spoken word piece from Deus called, Are You Okay? Before we begin, a reminder to check out my offering Beyond the Podcast, this is a bi-weekly live series over Zoom that follows each new episode, where we further explore the themes and ideas touched upon here. When possible, I also invite the guests on the show to answer your questions. Beyond the Podcast is available to podcast supporters. Visit themythicmasculine.com support 
to learn more. And now, enjoy my conversation with Deus Forte. Welcome, Deus, to the show. Thank you. It's really nice to be here with you. I'd first love to invite you to share a little of where we are in this moment and where you are, spiritually, emotionally, whatever that means to you. Sure. Right now we're in my bedroom <laughs> in Vancouver, in the little meditation corner that we have. And, uh, wow, it's, it feels like full circle. I'm just getting flashes of the entire relationship that you and I have shared together when we first met in a yurt. And mm-hmm. uh, even though it's a very, very different environment, it, it feels very much the same to me, like a completion of a, a circuit or a cycle. And I think that's that's really indicative of where I am at personally right now. It's been a huge trajectory over the last three years. I met you actually right when I was first embarking upon the journey of facilitating transformational experiences for people mm. on a professional level. That was very much at the beginning stage when you and I first met. And now it's grown and it's in full swing. And I feel like over the last six months in particular, in spite of all the craziness that's been happening around the world, I've really sunk into a groove in my dharmic path that is actually reflecting in the balance that I feel in the rest of my life with the community that's building the work that I'm doing, the relationship that I'm in and the friendships that I'm building. So right now in this moment, feeling a little physically, fatigued just coming off of a big journey of getting personal work done that you and I were just talking about recently but I'm also planning a lot of really potent offerings over the next few months so I feel clean I feel clear on my path and I'm really excited to finally be sitting down with you to have this conversation that we've been talking about for about a year now since the inception of this amazing work that you've been doing thank you brother I'm very excited to have this conversation because I feel like, you know, though we, we've shared certain dharmic kinship, I think, in, in a lot of ways. And there's certain realms which you've explored far more deeply than I have. And uh, I really appreciate what you've brought forth from your experiences in your, in your discipline with these, uh, in these realms. In particular, uh, the realms of understanding consciousness um, emotional literacy, um, transformation, um, and psychedelics. And so this is largely what the conversation will, will orbit around. Uh, first I'll bookmark this for the listener as well, that, uh, this morning I was uh, able to participate in my first five MEO DMT, uh, experience, mm-hmm. which uh, you know, I'm, you know, psychedelics, um, I've done a few, you know, so it's not my first, uh, rodeo in that regard, but oh my God, that was beyond anything I'd ever experienced. The intensity was off the charts mm-hmm. and, um, and it's something I want to get to later on in the, in the podcast, but just to maybe tease the listener a little bit that, uh, it's something that, uh, yeah, we'll be approaching later, but first, I'd love to go back a little earlier to your upbringing hmm. and what was it in how you grew up and where, um, and how did that influence maybe the big questions that you had 
um, you know, growing up and, and that mm, hinted at the path that you would take later mm-hmm. on in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. I've actually visited it quite a bit because I, I've told my story often in um, the coaching work that I do through ceremonies, but also in the human potential coaching that I do. And it's an interesting story. Um, it's always a question of how far back to go, but back when I was young, like when I had a bedtime at 7 PM, I I have this memory of actually laying awake in my bed and conducting these little consciousness experiments because I wasn't even fully identified with the body yet. And I was really curious about what this thing is that I'm operating. And I would look at my hands and wonder who is moving the hand as the hand is moving. And I knew that it was connected to me deciding that the hand was going to move but trying to actually track and trace all of the different forces that were coalescing all at once to actually cause the hand to move. And I would just lay awake for hours experimenting with these movements and how I could direct energy in different ways or like stare at a single point on the wall and see if I could focus on it so intensely that everything around it would turn black until it was the only thing that I could see. And I discovered that if I focused even more, that everything around it would actually turn white mm. and start pulsating with this really noticeable bright energy, even though I was in a completely dark room. So it tracks all the way back to when I was young, mm. having the sense that I was, I was living in a world that wasn't telling me the truth mm. about things. Because nobody had any answers to these questions that I was asking myself as a child. Mm. And that led me to actually being quite challenged as I went through school and being forced to learn and regurgitate certain things over and over and over again and not getting any, the actual answers that I was seeking. And that led to me getting quite significantly bullied throughout school. Even though I was very good at school, I was very good at sports. I was quite socially isolated, especially through the teenage years. And I think more than anything, that was one of the catalysts for me because I never felt like I really fit in, which was amplified and intensified by me being ostracized from my social group. And almost out of like resentment, I was like, okay, then fine. I'm going to remove myself from society and find out what actually matters because I'm not getting what I'm looking for from the world. I'm not getting it from relationships. And I was, I was really lonely. And I just wanted to feel connected to something significant. So after I graduated high school, in a very short period of time, I actually sold everything and left society to go be a monk back when I was 20 or 21 through self-realization fellowship and just completely dedicated myself to the spiritual path because I needed to know what enlightenment was. I needed to know who I really was and what reality was all about because something didn't seem right in the rest of the world. And I just had to figure out what that was. I don't know if I've, I don't think I've actually (laughs) discovered all of the answers, but it's definitely led me to places that I've found deeply fulfilling and has brought me back full circle to all the things that I left behind, like Mm -hmm. relationship and connection and how to engage in the world in a meaningful way. So Mm -hmm. I'm really, really grateful for all of those experiences. And I think it was predominantly the bullying that I received because it imprinted a lot of emotional wounding and a lot of patterns of being self-reliant and seeking out a a greater depth to life than what was being presented to me in in any of the external environments that I was being given. Mm. Mm. How long did you end up staying on the spiritual monkish path? And maybe what few things did you learn and why did you leave? You know, what was it maybe that was inherently finally you know, sort of uh, maybe not enough 
um, but and then you were sent back to the world. Good questions. I I had to come back to the world because they kicked me out of the ashram. <laughs> Not because I did anything wrong, but because my visa was up. Mm. And like I went there fully convinced that this is what I wanted to de- dedicate my life to was the monastic life. And the monks who are responsible for intake into the monastic order, they wanted me to come back and get more life experience before I basically got married <laughs> and, um, to a life of celibacy. <laughs> and they, they, they were right in, in their, uh, interpretation of where I was at in my path because I was very much in the honeymoon phase. So I've spent probably about two and a half, three years of my life in total at different ashrams and wow. spiritual communities. Um, the longest I've stayed at any one ashram at a particular stint was six months, which was my initial visit to self-realization fellowship down in California. But at that time for about the next four or five years or so, I had a very, very strong meditative practice through Kriya Yoga, which is a comprehensive yogic path through Paramahansa Yogananda. And that is a um, meditative practice of pranayama, of energy control, of learning how to actually regulate very subtle energy in conjunction with the breath up and down the spine as you withdraw it from the senses and the normal outward flow of energy you're actually reversing the flow drawing it into the subtle energy channels and directing it upwards towards higher consciousness centers that was my regular practice and i was meditating for about a minimum of two and a half hours a day for about five years before i started actually branching out and exploring a lot of other spiritual practices in conjunction with that meditation practice yeah what did you learn at the ashram, you know, about the nature of reality or truth? One of the main things that the yogic path taught, which had its pros and its cons, and I'll get to this in a second, mm-hmm. is that this reality that we live in, this three-dimensional realm is maya. It's a delusion. It's an illusion that has been pulled over the veil of consciousness that everybody believes is real. Like this is the ultimate reality. And this is reflected in our Western society, which is predominantly reductionist scientific in its, in its viewpoint. Like you understand something by dissecting it down into its most fundamental part. Mm-hmm. Yoga is teaching union, union with the divine through this interiorized practice. You're actually reversing the flow back to source. Mm-hmm. So this was really synergistic with my trauma and my programming, which was largely, okay, I need to withdraw in order to find what it is that I'm looking for. So it was right in alignment with the wounds that I was carrying. (laughs) But what I found through that was that it didn't actually reconcile the loneliness that I was experiencing in the world. And this was one of my main struggles with the monastic path is that I was intensely lonely, something that I actually came to name, which I called the terrible ache. Mm. And I had some of the strongest emotional releases I have had in my life, waking up from dreams where that was reflected, like this terrible ache of being alone. And so when I came out of that world as my, you know, all encompassing environment, I had to reconcile this fundamental disconnect that I had with other people and with the rest of the world. And that was really what drew me into the other spiritual paths that have rounded out my personal practice and my professional practice to 
of which the the core pillars are first there's the yogic path but then second is the shamanic path of working with different plant medicines and entheogens and then the third is the indigenous traditions specifically the blackfoot traditions the nitsitapi people down in southern alberta i've been a firekeeper and a drummer at a sundance down there since 2012 and those traditions are almost like the polar opposite of yoga in the sense that they're all about relationship. Mm. They pray out loud. They come together in celebration when they're in ceremony and they do it loudly and they do it as a celebration and they do it together. Everything is recognizing relationship. Like you're in right relationship with the earth, with the sky, with each other, mm. with the pipe, with the smoke, with your prayers. Everything's connected and it's meant to be shared. So that was a huge learning for me, going from this very interiorized practice of yoga to the very intense, psychedelic, intangible realms of shamanism that you can access through plant medicine, and then the very relationship-oriented approach through the indigenous practices. Mm -hmm. And I think it was thanks to those three paths that I came to find some semblance of balance of existing in this world feeling connected to my own spiritual path, but also feeling like there's meaning in conversations like this mm. and connecting to my friends and other people that I'm around and supporting my community in some meaningful way, instead of actually just saying, fuck it <laughs> and, and just removing myself. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on this. Podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, I think it was those three pillars really that kind of brought a sense of wholeness to it. But what I learned predominantly from the yogic path is that no external environment is needed in order to find truth, but it didn't reconcile the wounds that I had around relationship. Mm -hmm. I so appreciate that characterization of um, relationship because I, I, you're right. I mean, the way I've encountered indigenous ceremony in this place is really about that about right relationship you hear that a lot all my relations and and yeah it really struck me in the way that you just articulated it that's very much a relational path this also brings me to recognize where we intersected because i think earlier in the conversation you brought up that we met and it wasn't necessarily a, a specific ceremony but it was an indigenous leadership gathering held by um, some indigenous teachers largely and um, that mm, essential element that I had also felt called to that, 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 I mean, indigenous um, wisdom and way had such a significant piece. And again, certainly on this continent, um, i.e. Turtle Island. I'm curious, somewhere in there, you also were an actor. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Which I remember uh, early days. And uh, I understand though you've uh, left it perhaps largely behind, you know, for now, but um, I'm curious what drew you into acting and again, what did you find there in terms of your exploration of self and in particular maybe in the emotional realm? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. That's that's actually a core piece that I kind of skipped over. Um, I was actually encouraged by one of the monks, one of my mentors and most influential figures in my life named Brahmachari Joseph down in Southern California. <clears throat> he encouraged me to go and explore um, this program called Transformative Art, which was being facilitated by a parallel group to Self-Realization Fellowship that had actually like exited out of that organization on not such positive terms. And so I felt conflicted about going there. He actually encouraged me to go check it out. 
And so I, I went to this spiritual community and engaged in this program called Transformative Art, facilitated by an incredible teacher named Dana Lynn Anderson, who's based out of Oregon and Italy. And that whole program, it was a two-month immersive it was about exploring the territory, the full spectrum of feelings and dissolving all the fears, inhibitions, and blockages about feeling those things and expressing those things. Mm. And artistic mediums were used as the channels to explore the expression and the full embodiment of feeling across the full spectrum. And that was a huge life-transforming life experience for me because it was the first invitation I had really received to actually feel fully and express those things because that doesn't happen at an ashram. Mm -hmm. You know, it was <laughs> largely about, okay, whew, I'm super spiritual. I'm going to maintain equanimity in all circumstances. And everybody's trying to fulfill that archetype, you know, which creates its own spiritual ego mm. of sorts. Mm. And this was a really messy, really sloppy, really liberated environment that gave me permission mission to actually go really deep in the exploration and expression of feelings that I had suppressed and repressed for pretty much my entire life up until that point. Mm -hmm. And one of the most potent experiences I had there was when we did mask work. And so this was done in a very shamanic way where we laid down and in total silence, somebody would cover your face in the plaster and you'd be sitting there meditating with an intention as it was formed. And when it had fully hardened on your face, the whole class would gather around you with drums and rattles and they'd be chanting and the teacher would pull this mask off and she'd be pulling and pop off your face and all the music would stop and you'd open your eyes and she'd present the mask to you like you had just birthed this being. And then we spent weeks with these masks where you would listen to it and design it and color it based on the impressions that you were receiving from the mask. So you weren't generating anything. You were receiving guidance for what this being was and who this was. And we took it to incredible depths. So we had to find imagery that reflected the land or the universe and the galaxy that they came from. We found music that was like their theme music. We, we named them. We crafted a, a full wardrobe for them. And then we started inhabiting the mask. So all of that was done before we even put them on. Wow. And so we would sit with a partner in a very intentional way. We would put the mask on and then the partner would ask the mask questions. Who are you? Where do you come from? What are you doing here? Do you know Deus? If you have a message for him, what is that? And that was my first experience of connecting to an intelligence that was actually expressing through my form in a way that I was participating in, but it somehow extended beyond me. And I was having dreams of this being. I was, it was a really deep process. I was getting a lot of insight about how that archetype was directly reflected to where I was at at that particular time and receiving messages in real time for what was happening inside of my soul's evolution at that particular mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. So after that experience of embodiment, that embodiment practice, I realized this is what I need to explore. Like I have to find the false bottoms of my emotion. I have to figure out how to dissolve the blockages I have around expression. And that is what I need to do in my life right now. So I came to Vancouver, not necessarily to become a Hollywood movie star, but because I wanted to explore the art and craft of acting, which is really a shamanic exploration of developing a fluid identity where you can come to really understand and embody a fuller spectrum of the human experience, but also retain 
authenticity. Mm. And this is such an essential piece because when most people hear of acting, they think, oh, that person's really good at pretending. But if somebody's pretending they're a really bad actor and you can tell yeah. immediately, you say that guy's a bad actor because he's faking it. But if somebody's a good actor, then they're genuinely living an experience. And that is why you lose yourself in the story. And that was a, that was a key component for me reconciling being a human in this world and actually bridging the gap between my spiritual life, which is really isolating and being a human. It built a bridge between the two of those. And one of the results or one of the consequences of that was there was more opportunities for other people to connect with me because my inner life was no longer hidden behind this fortress of isolation. It was actually being expressed and liberated through that expression, which then created community around me over the next few years. I, I've heard of a little bit about that time in your life, but the whole thing about the masks and that sounds incredible. Um, and I mean, what comes to me as you share this, it really feels like so much the archetypal journey of men in this culture. I mean, of course, anybody can participate in that. I think it can have real value, but this whole idea of, you know, men often feeling isolated, you know, numb, separate from their emotions, um, and the need to, come back to an expressiveness yeah. and, and just to say that um, recently reading some of Robert Bly and his time with, you know, men's work and, and Iron John and all that, he, he did characterize what they did as expressive masculinity mm. very purposely because they knew that that was so much of a missing piece for so many men. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've definitely found that to be true, not just for myself, but with most of the men that I work with is that there's this almost like culturally, installed inhibition around expressing and it's not just vulnerability it's like Mm. anything out of the territory of aggression or stoicism it's almost looked down upon or like stuffed deep inside the person and i'm not saying i'm totally liberated from that but like the channels have definitely opened up to the point where i can recognize when it's present in another and and wanting so badly to to free that being from the cage that they're installed in. Cause that's what it felt like. It felt like I was in a, a cage for most of my life, but I couldn't see it and I didn't know how to find my way out of it. Mm. The glass case of emotion. <laughs> <laughs> well, this reminds me too of uh, a conversation we've returned to a few times and it was characterized in a, a ceremony that had just come out of with you or, or sorry, in the ceremony where I was able to inhabit what I felt like was really my own ability to articulate yeah my internal programming around this very subject like around essentially what felt like my inability to trust the point of emotions right i think i literally asked you that i was like i asked you that sincerely in the ceremony as one who has traversed these realms and and has come back and you shared a little in the past about the, the the sort of purposefulness of emotions and uh i i was struck by your ability to to articulate in a fashion the value of them and and like the color and the shape and the texture and and i would love for you to offer a little bit of that territory if you can sure yeah and this isn't really unique to my own perspective it's it's a combination of teachings and experiences that i've received from many different teachers including dana lynn anderson but also one of my mentors here in the vancouver area satyan raja he has his own vocabulary around this through warrior sage trainings but the exploration of it through transformative art is connected to what it is that you're speaking to 
wherein when we begin to unlock the full range and depth of our emotion, the inevitable conclusion of that is that these emotions are intelligent. They have information. And we are, if we reject an emotion or try to suppress it or repress it, we're actually limiting our access to wisdom. It's some aspect of reality, some aspect of identity that we're locking off in a corner because we're segregating it as, as being bad. And we're trying to hang on to the good ones, but that's just not how life works. But when you give yourself the opportunity to start feeling something like anger, but you remove identification from it, you can start developing a relationship to it where you're participating in it, but you're no longer controlled. You're no longer possessed, hijacked mm. by the emotion. You can actually develop a healthy relationship to it. So I'll, I'll just ask you when you're, what kind of scenarios do you feel angry in mm -hmm. generally? Mm -hmm. mm. I find often I can touch anger when usually it's a sequence of events where maybe they're frustration building upon frustration and, and sort of a, maybe a, a, a bottling up, you know, over time then leads to this need to either like really stuff it down or, or express. But then also growing up in a culture where I looked to how anger is expressed and often it turned hostile, right? Or aggressive, mm -hmm. which is the fuse is the same thing. And it was for my, for a long time, right? So a lot of men have that, I think, too. It's like, oh, well, anger is only aggressive. Right. And so there's inability to actually work with it. Right. So what kind of circumstance elicits anger in you? Um, I mean, just say when, you know, there's a certain outcome of something that I want to go my way and doesn't. And um, maybe it, ha it would have to be something I was pretty attached to, you know, as wanting to go my way and, mm -hmm. and doesn't. And, mm -hmm. and anger can arise. Right. So some sort of desire not being fulfilled. Some other potential situations could be when a boundary is being crossed uh -huh. or when an injustice is being done. And so the the emotion of anger, actually, I just heard a few days ago someone say, Matt is just Sad's bodyguard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I really like that. But anyway, anger generally arises when there's some sort of infringement upon your freedom or your rights or your sense of justice. And so anger, what does anger do? It's, it's very stimulating. It's an activating force. It mobilizes the system, right? So it helps to penetrate any type of barrier of fear it gives you the motivation the courage even to step beyond a threshold where there's potential risk involved so it's mm. it has a potential healthy application but what else i also heard you say is that when anger does arise there's an automatic response to it of this is bad this is violent this is aggressive and so i have to suppress this in order to be welcome in order to be safe in order to be a good man because mm -hmm. I don't want to be violent. I don't want to be aggressive. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a light component to it and there's a shadow component to it. And I don't use that phrase by in, it's not synonymous with good and bad. It's just recognizing there's an application potential for the emotion because it is giving information to the system. And so if I allow myself to actually feel the anger 
I can locate where it exists in my body. I can actually find sensation like at the top of my ears start getting hot and my chest starts pulsating. And I can really tune into the sensation and start identifying its qualities. If you pay attention, you can notice its size, its shape, its color, its texture, its weight, its age, Mm. what it might sound like. And then you can use some form of intentional expressive modality, such as art, to breathe that emotion, that energy, that intelligence into life. And one of the benefits of doing that, specifically it's if it's a kind of visual art, but also through embodiment practices like dance or acting or vocally through singing, you then have an objective representation of that energy that was previously locked inside the system. So if you paint that out, you now have a visual representation of this energy that was contained within you, and you can start interfacing with it. You can start interacting with it. You can start asking it questions. You can start receiving responses, receiving guidance. Like, what message do you have for me? What behavioral response are you calling me towards? And you can actually receive that information and then you can choose to act upon it in a wisdom guided way instead of being hijacked by the emotion, which is largely a reactionary response born of some sort of wound or some sort of trauma, mm-hmm. right? So you can actually engage in a relational exchange with that emotion, which completely obliterates the suppression and the repression mechanism. And you can start harvesting the wisdom of that experience. And then if you follow through on it, you'll find that every single emotion is attempting to guide your evolutionary trajectory mm. when it's not inhibited and it's when it's not distorted by your own traumatic conditioning. Mm. It makes me think that this culture, and like I experienced, um, has a core distrust of emotions, particularly men seem to, because often they require a kind of surrender. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's particularly emotions like sadness, right? Or fear that aren't seen as typically, um, masculine, let's say. Um, but even joy, like I, I was reading recently, uh, one author, but he was saying, you know, how often do you, have you seen an, a man walk down the street in such a, in a joyful expression, right? Like it's very yeah. rare, actually. Um, and even myself, I find if I'm actually feeling authentic joy in a public situation, I will kind of like suppress, you know, which is, is such a tragedy of, this very same cutting oneself off from this intelligence that wants to move. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. If you suppress one emotion, you suppress all emotions. I had this really fascinating experience through acting, actually, where I was involved in this play called American Refugee, and I was playing a soldier who had intense PTSD in this, um, it's not post-apocalyptic, what's like the... Um, like dystopian? Yes, yeah. like a dystopian kind of environment where... He goes off to war, has an extremely traumatizing experience over there, and he comes back to his hometown, and it's been just completely destroyed. Everybody's addicted to drugs, and the partner that he left is now a whore who's actually dating the major drug dealer of the town. And so I enter into the very first scene coming back home from war and seeing everything that I loved, everything that I had fought for completely destroyed and corrupted. That's how the journey started for my character. 
And we did nine shows in a row. It's a really beautiful trajectory with like a liberating finale, a huge emotional journey. But <laughs> as an actor, I had to get into this genuine emotional state as I entered into the scene at the very beginning. Mm. And about halfway through the shows, this was like number four, number five, I was in the green room and I was feeling so fulfilled and so <laughs> satisfied with my life and with the work that I was doing that I'm feeling like this bubbling joy. And I'm like, oh shit, <laughs> this is not good. I got to get into like a really activated state before I go in. And I closed my eyes and started tuning into my emotional state. And I could feel like this white ball, this pure white ball of energy pulsating in my solar plexus. And it was just pure potential energy. And this energy actually communicated to my mind, don't worry, I will take whatever form is needed at the appropriate time. And I was like, wow, okay. And so I walked behind stage and as soon as it was time for me to walk, walk out on stage. It took the form of traumatized activation as I stepped onto the stage. And in that moment, I came to realize that all energy comes from the same source. Mm. Every emotion is just a particular shade. It's just a particular color of pure potential energy. And so if you're suppressing or repressing one component of mm. it, that actually filters over to all of the other territories as well. But the, the reciprocal is also true. When you start liberating some aspect of your emotional landscape, that liberates the entire spectrum. So you start inhabiting greater joy, and then maybe a few days later, you're overwhelmed with this really strong sense of depression or anger that has previously been inhibited mm. and vice versa. You find like there's this sine wave where you start plumbing the heights and the depths of different emotions because you start popping the cork off of one mm. and it starts opening up all the others because they come from the same place. They're just different iterations of that potential. I could keep going on this thread. And I do want to turn a little towards the plant medicine yeah. path. And I'm curious, how did the path call you? And, and when did you know that, you know that you would step more fully into this exploration using these tools and these, these medicines? Well, I'll preface by saying not once did I ever desire to facilitate with any type of plant medicine or entheogen. Hmm. I never had that desire once in my life. In fact, I was more on the other side where I was um, quite judgmental towards people who decided to step into that role and I would criticize and judge them based on my interpretation of their qualifications and things like that. Mm -hmm. But I had been sitting with plant medicines right about the same time that I first started stepping into meditation. I was actually invited to my first ayahuasca ceremony by one of the people at the meditation center that I started attending in Calgary. So connected to self-realization fellowship, which is the only reason why I went because I really trusted this individual and he was bringing a curandero up from Peru to facilitate ceremonies. And he invited me and was speaking very, very highly of it. So I did a whole bunch of research. I prepared for a month. I totally cleaned my diet. I didn't engage in any type of sexual activity. I, I took it very, very seriously. And I sat in three ceremonies uh, when I was 21, back to back, right before I left to go be a monk. Wow. 
And so that was my first exposure to plant medicine. And it blasted me into such a profound territory that when I came back to Canada, I never considered plant medicine to be my path per se, but I would revisit those spaces to bolster my spiritual practice and to bring me to the edges of the territories that I had explored within consciousness and to go a little bit deeper. So with my one of my first ayahuasca experiences, I remember it bringing me to a territory of such overwhelming love that I was convinced that a single drop more would completely destroy me. Mm. I had tears streaming down my face and I had to pray, this is too much love. Please no more. I'm going to die if I receive one more ounce of love. Please pull back. And I was praying for it to pull back a little bit. And it did. And I started learning that you could actually commune with these intelligent forces. They weren't inert substances. There's a consciousness behind them. And it, the whole journey was actually participatory. And so I would visit those spaces periodically once every couple of years or so just to tap in again. And how it ended up leading into facilitation was quite unexpected. I ended up sitting with the Santo Daime Church here in Vancouver, actually on the grounds of UBC, mm. because the Santo Daime can serve ayahuasca legally because it's considered a religious sacrament mm. for their church. Mm-hmm. And so I went and sat with them two times in a row. And in the second ayahuasca ceremony, it was taking me way beyond what I thought I could handle for the entire ceremony. And I definitely asked for it. <laughs> like, I, uh, it started coming in super strong at the beginning and then I asked it to pull back and it agreed and it actually showed me a memory of something that had happened a couple days prior. And it said, I sent you this experience as a test. You passed the test. And so because of that, I will honor your request and pull back. Mm. And it did and went into this really beautiful, gentle, experience and then about halfway through they offer more medicine and i drank two more cups <laughs> and so the medicine started coming on way stronger and it came in this time and it said you asked for this i'm not pulling back this time and it was pushing me way beyond what i thought i could handle but for that entire duration it was pumping this message through my mind. You're being prepared for these realms. Mm. You're being prepared for these realms. You're being prepared for these realms. And I came out of that journey, not putting any stock really in that message because I had no desire to serve, especially ayahuasca. (laughs) And about six months later, I ended up meeting my partner, Aga, and she introduced me to the medicine that we work with. And as soon as I sat with her in that first ceremony. It's like the medicine picked up right where it left off and started guiding me through very specific teachings and trainings and internalized rites of passage, showing me how to guide and direct and work with it to um, basically act as an extension of the medicine in service to others. So that's when I started actually transitioning into facilitating for others, but did, did it very, very hesitantly because I, I had a lot of judgment around it towards others and towards myself. And I also had a recognition of, you know, me being a a baby on the path and not having access to, you know, the, the vast wellsprings of wisdom that our elders have. And so there was a lot of self doubt and questioning as to why 
I was doing that. But the pull from the medicine was so strong and so clear that I just followed it and it ended up evolving and growing into what it is now, which is a full life path, like a whole dharmic pursuit. What are some of the criticisms why people, you know, you know, basically you look out and you see that the whole arena, right, is fraught with, you know, shamans and, and people that are pouring and, and maybe way too early or um, in situations that aren't very safe. And so I, I say this just as a moment of a kind of um, naming the challenges of the scene, yeah. you know, so people don't also feel a sense of um, uh, that that's skirted over, you know, that it is actually really um, somewhat mm, can be dangerous, can be. Yeah. Um, hurtful. Yeah, absolutely. What's the question? <laughs> the question is just to speak a little bit about like, why is it that um, there are, does seem to be a lot of controversy, a lot of, and a lot of harm actually created through plant medicine, through the plant medicine scene, you know, that, that you're aware of in terms of, you know, also yeah. what, what made you hesitate as well because of seeing maybe things like this and saying, yeah. whoa. Yeah. There's a lot of different answers that I could give to that. Maybe I'll actually just preface it by saying that in one of the early ayahuasca ceremonies that I was in, um, one of the participants went into a really intense trauma activation. So she's reliving a traumatic experience right near the end of the ceremony. And the facilitators, who were incredible facilitators, they have a very high-level reputation within many circles that I'm connected to, they left at the end of the ceremony and didn't come in and check in on her, but she started going in at the end of the ceremony and it was complete. And so they packed up and they left. This is a ceremony of about 60 people. And I invited her and her partner over to my space because they were from out of town and didn't have anywhere to go. And the next day she wouldn't talk at all. She was totally silent for about three days. And she told me after that she didn't think she would ever speak again. And this is kind of a, a long story that I'm just going to jump over, but her and I actually ended up getting into a partnership about just over a year later. And I got to actually develop a deeper relationship with this person and experience a lot more of the trauma signature that she was carrying. But that was, that was like a really early exposure that I had to the plant medicine realms, like the potential ramifications, the consequences of not holding a person in a good way. So that was a big part of my judgment towards other people who were stepping into these realms to guide and support other people is not having the presence or the skill or the capacity to be able to hold, to guide and direct a person in and through the very sensitive territories of the psyche in a way that actually leads to the discharge of that trauma and a lasting, meaningful, positive transformation in their life. So I was very, very aware of the potential consequences right at the beginning. And I don't know how many people have been exposed to real intense traumatic processing in their lives. All of us have experienced trauma in some way, shape, or form, which isn't the experience, it's the carryover from the experience. Mm -hmm. But when you're actually going into trauma release, when you start working into deep psycho-emotional territory, the sensitivity of that and the recognition that everything becomes symbolic mm -hmm. and requires a very heightened sensitivity to psychology, emotions, 
energy and symbolism and bringing all of those things together in a skillful way. The complexity of that was very, very intimidating mm. for me. And I'm connected to a few different circles who work with plant medicine and everybody has their different style. They have their different approach. Like some circles really approach it much more loosely and like a celebratory kind of like family vibe. Other people are very clinical in their application. And myself and my partner tend to have a very, what I would call a balanced approach where it's a psychotherapeutic approach to working with the medicine, but there's also an invitation and a participation in the shamanic aspect as well. But bringing all these pieces together, I think one of the main things that I've witnessed as a potential shortcoming in our Western approach to plant medicine is either an overemphasis on the clinical nature or a devaluing of the clinical aspect. So one of the positive components of the clinical aspect is preparation and integration mm. as a strong, strong emphasis. You don't find that in Central or South America either, which is actually very confusing for them because they live in a culture mm. where it that ceremony is a part of their life. So integration is on a daily basis. It's built right into how they live day to day in relationship with one another. They don't need to create integration protocols. They live in an integration environment. Mm -hmm. And so to have Westerners come into those spaces who are unfamiliar with the shamanic territory and don't have the skills or the tools or the relationships to be able to integrate that experience harmoniously creates a lot of confusion on both sides. And so people, Westerners are coming back home, totally blasted open back into our dissociated, sedated Western culture, not knowing how to integrate. Mm -hmm. And then they either close back down or they go into a mild form of psychosis. Whether, whereas here in the Western world, it's very clinical, very dry, not really acknowledging the living essence of these medicines, mm -hmm. the conscious element of these medicines and actually interacting with that in a respectful, humble, receptive, responsive way. So to summarize, I see two potential dangers. One is approaching it too clinically where you're not actually recognizing or acknowledging the relational aspect mm -hmm. of working with these medicines or completely negating any type of preparation or integration process, which is really, really helpful for the Western psycho-emotional makeup because we haven't really been prepared for these spaces. It's not present in our culture, mm -hmm. right? We're so separated from each other and we're not taught how to honor and respect and receive the living essence of things in a way that allows us to actually integrate it into our daily lives. Mm -hmm. So a skilled practitioner will do both of those things mm -hmm. from my perspective. They'll both prepare the participant before the experience They'll guide them in a skillful way throughout, not imposing upon their journey, but stepping in to guide and protect the sanctity of their psycho-emotional environment through the duration of it as an extension of the medicine instead of imposing their own egotistical opinion of what should be happening or what shouldn't be happening. And then they help support the integration of the journey after, mm -hmm. which if you were to boil it down to its simplest form, is to get to a very specific action step. Knowing what you know now, what is one specific thing you can do 
to live this more fully in your life. Mm. It can be as simple as that. And most of the circles that I've been in don't have the proper structure in place with the preparation or the integration. And then the, the navigation during the experience uh, is often questionable as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there's a lot of territory there yeah. that is, is highly, highly sensitive, yeah. which is why it's so important to actually sit with and meet and communicate with the person who's going to be facilitating prior to the experience so that you feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. Well said. I'd love to share a little bit about my experience yeah. this morning. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like I said, I I don't consider myself a well, a, a strongly experienced um, person who has done a lot of psychedelics. But like I said, I've I've done enough to know that there are other kinds of consciousnesses out there. And you know, the first time it happens, um, it's a bit like going to another country. You know, when I I remember back to one of the first times I traveled to another country where they don't speak English, and how on the one hand, you know, I can intellectually know that of course people don't speak English everywhere, but there's something just discombobulating that happens when you're actually in the presence of someone speaking a different language. Now this is again, maybe different than even just having a friend that maybe speaks, you know, Spanish or something like if if you go to a place where the whole culture Mm -hmm. um, is very different, obviously around language. Yeah. It can really put into a confrontation the idea that, you know, the supremacy of your own language, let's say, right. but, but I'm applying this now to consciousness, which it, for me, plant medicines really, um, create a confrontation around the recognition that your consciousness or my consciousness day to day really is just one kind of consciousness or, or one aspect or one layer of consciousness. And so, you know, for one that maybe has never only done for the first time, yeah, that can be a huge disturbing revelation. Hmm. And, you know, the more familiarity that people have with these states, right, they can then start to really map and to build relationship and all of that. And this is where I feel really grateful because I consider you one who has gone, you know, deeply into these states. And um, I can share a little bit about now my experience with yeah, 5-MEO. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> which, um, okay, how about this first is, uh, I'd love for you to share with the listener too, what, what is 5-MEO DMT? So 5-MEO DMT is 5-methoxydimethyltryptamine. It's... Um, tryptamine compound um when most people hear dmt they're thinking of what's called nndmt 5-meo dmt is very different it is basically oxygenated dmt and it passes right through the blood brain barrier it's a tryptamine which means it's basically like brain food your brain eats it up very very quickly and very fast acting, very, very strong. It hits your system within 10 seconds and it launches you into indescribable intensity. Because it's a tryptamine, it has very little consequence to the rest of the organs in your body. You don't build up a tolerance to it and it's endogenous to the body, meaning that your own body produces it. DMT is released into your system when you, when you're born, when you dream, and when you die. So it's not a foreign substance. You're actually just imbibing a high volume of something that your system is equipped to be able to receive and process. So when you inhale 5-MeO-DMT, it's very fast acting. It goes directly to the brain and then it catalyzes um, very, very intense altered states of consciousness. (laughs) Yes, it does. (laughs) 
Um, I mean, you know, they, Deus had shared about some sense of the territory, you know, with language and, and, and the best that he could. And he's very articulate about it. And at the same time, it really, um, withered in comparison to what the experience actually was. Uh, I will say that the, the, uh, it starts off with a, with a light dose, right? To, to titrate, as you said, you know, to kind of just give a little sense about what, where, where it's going to head for the body to get a little familiar with it. Um, mm-hmm. and then the second dose, which is, as you've, you described it, was just skirt, skirt the abyss or skirt the edge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I can say that that certainly was quite a skirt. Um, <laughs> I, I've never experienced anything that intense like mm-hmm. bar none. Um, and I will say that it, it really, uh, kind of rocket shipped me to an edge of what, again, I've never, I've only intellectually understood as ego death. Mm. I'm not saying I fully even experienced that, but what I feel I did experience was really like that. Yeah. That edge where the, the, what you think you are really dissolves and how I will say terrifying that is. Mm-hmm. Perhaps, you know, the first time maybe, and, and I've, maybe I've heard stories of really you saying that, yeah, having done it many times that the terror takes a little while to, to go away because of the uncertainty of what that actually represents. Mm. That for me, I really felt, yeah, a degree of terror, which I have never experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, and to say that, you know, I felt like skirting that, um, edge was also something on the other side of it, which, which was a promise of, okay, but, you know, if this isn't you and there's a willingness to let go, then there's something on the other side of it, Mm. which maybe you could share a little more about what that is. Sure. Yeah. There's only so much I can say about it because one of the things that happens with 5-MeO-DMT or BUFO, which is used synonymously with 5-MeO-DMT sometimes, is slightly different, but is that some people consider it to be the only true entheogen, meaning to awaken the divine within and it's a very reliable technology for catalyzing what many consider to be the most powerful experience you can have as a human, which is a non-dual experience. And I'm not trying to be coy in saying that there's not much I could do to describe it. This is just the reality of it because in non-dual spaces, you're actually going beyond the territory that is classifiable by the intellect your mind can't actually comprehend it because it's not a space that you can reduce to individual components. You're actually blasting beyond all of the mechanisms that create the human system, thought, emotion, body, ego, which is your identity construct. You're blasting all the way through that and you come to find that not only do you still exist, but the you is met by everything there is no other and it's not as though you're looking at totality it's a vibratory participatory experiential process where you become something indescribable and a lot of people attempt to describe this as becoming god it gives you the direct experience of divinity. And it's a very reliable technology for that. But the natural <laughs> process of getting there, and Ian, you and I were talking about this in the <laughs> ceremony space, you can't bring anything with you. You can't bring 
your ideas, you can't bring your beliefs, you can't bring your identity, your ego construct into that space because it is beyond that entire territory. And so as you launch into that space, everything that is a barrier, that is a veil preventing that state of consciousness is blasted through. And that's what a lot of people call ego death. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was really wild to feel that battle as well like between the ego persona or the sense of what i am trying to hold on mm-hmm. meanwhile it's like yeah trying to literally hold on to a rocket ship that is like blasting through the stratosphere yeah. uh, and how much suffering it is to try to hold on to that and then the release into that space of which i feel again like i don't claim any familiarity now with that space because i just touched it but um the piece also that i felt actually was revelatory was what felt like an like an utter surrender to the body as in all of my sort of conscious control over the body which again or sorry unconscious control of the body um just completely was obliterated and um you explained this to me a little bit before that people tend to constellate under different archetypes in the way that they express mm-hmm. and um i'd be curious to hear if, if you want to lay out a little about yeah about what kinds of archetypes people typically express it sure You know, before people sit with this medicine, one of the main things that I share with them is that you're not a human. We've come to believe and have been taught in various ways that we're human. But this human vessel is really just an instrument through which consciousness flows into this three-dimensional realm. It's how you're able to actually interact with things on this vibration vibrational frequency and a lot of spiritual teachings teach this but to have the actual experience of all of the different components breaking down leads to the revelation of what exists beyond those spheres so there's the mental there's the physical there's the emotional realms and then all of these things are overlaid on top of each other through what i call trauma signatures and so as energy is discharged out of the system, it completely obliterates all the holding patterns that have been installed in our psycho-emotional system. This is another way of describing trauma release. Like if anybody has ever experienced somatic experiencing by Peter Levine or or any type of um, really deep shadow work or shaking, like Osho meditation, you get to a place where the system itself starts to take over with its own intelligence. And as your holding patterns start to dissolve, spontaneous movements start to take over. And this is where the discharge is actually taking place. Because the the holding patterns that we carry, the emotions that we haven't allowed ourselves to feel, the constriction that we've accumulated throughout our life, it is being held in the body. And the system is intelligent. If we're not holding it there, it will naturally start discharging. And this is the nervous system. This is a natural response from the nervous system. If you get activated and suddenly you're in a fight or flight state and you can't fight off or get away from the threat, your body then goes into a freeze response and it actually sedates the whole system and locks it into place as a final survival mechanism. This energy gets locked in the system. As you release it, the process goes in reverse. 
So your system remobilizes, it gets launched into a fight or flight response, which isn't a bad response, it's just a mobilization response, and the natural discharge takes place. So this is spontaneous emotion rising up, this is spontaneous movement, this is sound, all of these things just start flowing out of the system like a dam is just broke. This is a very intelligent, very healthy part of coming back to our original wholeness. So this is a, a very potent medicine for catalyzing very intense, very rapid trauma release through the system because it is launching consciousness up into the stratosphere, dimensions of reality that are more fundamental to who we are as infinite beings. And on the way, it is flushing out... <laughs> All of the plumbing is <laughs> just blasting it out of your channels because all of your inhibitions are gone. And there's nothing that you can do to control or keep it in place. And this is part of the fear yeah. that a lot of people experience because you can't control it anymore. And the surge of discharge, <laughs> the, the, the secret is that as these things are released, they pass through the system. Mm -hmm. A lot of people come into ceremonial spaces or transformative spaces and they're like, I want to be free from all my traumas. I don't want to have fear anymore. I want to be free from this depression. And they think it's just going to poof, just magically disappear. Mm -hmm. But we need to understand that it passes through the system. We have to feel these things and actually surrender to the intelligence that they are trying to impart upon the system for them to actually be discharged. So this is what happens incredibly rapidly and incredibly intensely <laughs> on this medicine. Yeah. And on a level of consciousness, what is happening is all the layers of identity are being stripped away one by one. Mm -hmm. Ooh. Yeah, I'm, I'm back in the place now remembering. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a pleasure to, <laughs> to both witness and serve you in those spaces. On the other side of it, you know, I, I really felt like this regaining of this, you know, control, the ego control. Um, not as, not as a bad thing per se, but just, yeah, coming back into a sense of, of, of relationship too. And, um, you had cued me a little bit prior that to be aware, to be alert when that happens, because it begins to reveal how one constructs their identity and how their, maybe the superego is in control. And mm. yeah, I mean, that, that provided some pretty, I mean, compelling insight, I think, which will take me a, a while to unpack. Mm. But I will say that, um, you know, what it felt like was, yeah, just degree of degree, maybe going back to that emotional literacy and, and emotional trust and expression that, you know, I do think I, it's, I know this is my work for some time, but that the, the blasting of the inhibitions revealed coming back again, just how unconsciously inhibited, you know, I make myself. Mm. And I'm currently reading a book uh, called Joy by uh, Alexander Lowen, I believe, uh, founder of Bioenergetics. Bio but what he says is, you know, there's such a thing as freedom, as external freedom, as one thinks, like, oh, I can do what I want when I want, is a, is a certain type of freedom. But so many of us in the West suffer from internal uh, lack of freedom, as in we're not allowed to feel what we feel. And that's an internal conditioning around shame and guilt and yeah. all that stuff, which, you know, may be familiar now to a lot of the listeners, depending on, you know, where they grew up. And so I would say this medicine also kind of blasted me through the the inhibitions to allow expression that you know has wanted to happen mm. but of course you know riding the rocket ship of there's no choice anyway but <laughs> but i'm feeling on the other side of it again you know like i started laughing right on the when i came back <laughs> 
I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> this is what this is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's no words to it. But it's really interesting to observe, like, as we go into what I call consciousness architecture, mm. like, there's nothing wrong with the ego. The ego has been demonized by a lot of different New Age communities and spiritual teachings and just the phrasing, the association of the ego is, is quite negative, but the ego is just the construct that allows you to navigate in this realm. Like the ego is the vessel builder that allows you to actually engage in any particular way. But what's happened as we've moved through life is that we experience some sort of painful experience that isn't allowed to complete its full cycle and properly discharge as it would if it wasn't inhibited. It gets stored in the system and then we develop what's called a compensatory action or behavior. And that's what we build our personalities, our identities on top of. Actually, we're armoring up so that we don't need to go back to that sensation that was inherently overwhelming, which felt like if we felt that thing, we would die. Mm. And so we develop all of these coping mechanisms to avoid these things that we carry inside of us. And that becomes our personality. That becomes our identity. And that's what I call your, your consciousness structure. And so we have to actually disassemble that structure and as we disassemble that structure, all of those suppressed and repressed aspects of ourselves actually come up. They surface to be felt and to be expressed and to be discharged. And then we're left in kind of a fluid place where we can now craft a new consciousness structure, a new vessel that can carry and guide and direct consciousness in a different liberated way. And when you're coming back from the non-dual spaces, it's like you can witness the the construct building itself again, like block by block, very, very rapidly as the mind and the emotion and the armoring all comes back and solidifies again back into a cohesive whole, maybe with a few pieces shifted and altered, some energy released. And it's in this discombobulated state that the integration really happens because you come back a new person you're like, okay, how do I exist in, this, in the world now from this new vantage point without all of the armoring and the defense mechanisms and the coping strategies and the behaviors that I had carried up until this point? How do I actually craft a new identity? And that's really where the work begins. Yeah. Like as the ceremony comes to completion, the rest of the ceremony of life begins. And this is one of the main things that is important to communicate, which is tied to what we we're describing before about the potential pitfalls of these ceremonial spaces is that these realms, not just with Bufor or 5-MeO-DMT or, but with any psychedelic or plant medicine, they're not meant to be separate from the rest of life. They're actually meant to reveal us to ourselves so that we can actually live in a more optimized, more holistic, more integrated, more whole state of being. They're teachers that are teaching us how to be human. And they have existed on this planet far longer than we have. Mushrooms are actually our ancestors. I don't know if you've ever seen... Um, fantastic Funky? Yeah, Fantastic Not funky. yet, but I will now. <laughs> it's amazing. 
like I could talk for a really long time about mushrooms, but they have rebuilt the planet multiple times over. They're, they're our genetic ancestors. They're revealing us to ourselves so that we can live in an optimized state. Be, it's fascinating when you when you start observing this not only in yourself but also in others and you come to see that every person's identity is a construct not just as an idea but as an actual reality every personality is actually just a construct it's just a combination of stories mm. which is one of the reasons why i respect the work that you do so much about actually going into the mythos the myths that actually generate and create and supplement the human experience mm. because every single one of us is just a combination of stories. And these medicines really ask us to consider who am I when I remove all of my stories? What is left? Mm. Perfect segue. As I'm, I would love to hear some of how you've mapped consciousness now in these realms. Um, as one who's, who's visited now numerous times and, um, you know, at one point you shared a, a kind of hierarchical map um, of realms that uh, I found really fascinating and would love for you to speak a little on that. Sure. Um, by no means is this true. I just want to preface this. This is just a, a model that helps me articulate and understand different heights and depths of experiences for myself based on what I've been exposed to through the yogic realms and also more um, esoteric teachings and practices where the third dimension is this physical reality that we occupy that everybody's familiar with this is where you get into the territory of you know dietary protocols like you need x number of grams of protein in mm. order to rebuild your body <clears throat> this is the third dimensional territory when you start going into the fourth dimensional territory, this is where you start getting into energy work. This is where you start getting into the ability to actually manifest things in reality, to influence creation using a combination of thought and emotional energy that you're actually putting out into the field as an electromagnetic being. You're actually interfacing with the energetic level. This is where you can start getting into self-healing or doing something like drawing energy from the sun, for example, or doing something like Reiki or energy work on someone. This is fourth dimension. Fifth dimension is really difficult for a lot of people to comprehend because fifth dimension is where you start exiting what our normal duality is in how we operate in the day-to-day -day world of light and dark, of good and bad. When you enter into the fifth dimension, this form of polarity changes completely where it's now um, synergistic polarities where it would be love and light as the polarities that exist. You've actually discharged a lot of the stored trauma, the blockages, the inhibitions that are preventing access to higher states of consciousness. And this is the territory of the great masters that are incarnated on this planet like Ama or Paramahansa Yogananda. You know, these are beings who are actually attuned with higher vibrational frequency, a higher order of reality that is very difficult for people to comprehend. And it's in this territory that you start collapsing the concepts of time and space because you're no longer identified with the physical form or any of the constructs. This is perceived and experienced as a vessel. It's not identified with anymore. 
When you get into the sixth dimension, this is the dimension of the archetypes, the the energetic blueprints of reality that actually trickle up and out throughout time and space to take form and function throughout all things that exist. Like this is where you start getting into the king, warrior, magician, lover. This is where you start getting into the deities like Krishna and Shiva and Kali and how every person can tap into that archetypal force. It's not bound to any individualized, localized expression, even though it can manifest in form as a pure embodied representation of that, it also exists within you because it's a foundational energetic blueprint that ripples up through creation. And this is the territory that you start accessing when you um, work with NNDMT. You start actually exploring archetypal realms. You also could call this the collective consciousness sphere. And then the seventh dimension is where we start getting into non-duality. And it's really difficult to describe this territory because it's actually beyond conceptualization. And this is the territory that 5MEO very consistently brings people. So generally, if I was to categorize it in very simplistic terms, there's the experience of absolute nothingness, a field of nothingness through which, from which all things arise, or an infinite field of everythingness where only one thing exists. It's this percolating toroidal feedback system that is ever existing ever conscious ever new bliss satchitananda as they describe it in yogic terminology but it's an indescribable sphere where any type of reduction reductionist analysis will never successfully articulate or comprehend those spaces and that that is that is like the trajectory of full remembrance we're progressively releasing attachment and identification with lower vibrational frequencies as we come into contact with an identification with higher and higher states of consciousness which leads us up the vibrational scale which leads us up the dimensional scale as well mm. ultimately creating permanent contact with source consciousness itself which is called nirbikalpa samadhi in yogic terms mm. Mm. thank you you're welcome. <laughs> you know, what comes up for me is one, um, you know, I've heard this critique often of, of kind of new age depictions of things of, of higher, you know, higher consciousness is better consciousness. And there, there can become this sort of, um, lower consciousness, you know, is, is not good and higher yeah. consciousness is better. <laughs> bad. You've got a bad consciousness. <laughs> so I'm not saying that this is what you're articulating, but I'm, I'm aware of that. I can sneak in with this, these kinds of understandings, but also, the other thing that um, has been a real consequence, of course, is the the kind of um, demonization of the body, right? Demonization of of embodiment, of of carnality, of of earthiness, and and so I'm curious how you hold that, you know, within this map of consciousness. That um, how does one hold both the understanding of that, you know, that heights and the not identification with the body, and yet at the same time, you know, being embodied and and you know interfacing in this reality and yeah, like I'm just curious, how do you how do you hold that? How do you experience that? Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, as you were talking about that, I got the image of the, I think it's called the Yggdrasil. The, oh, the world tree. Yeah. yeah. And is that the tree that's upside down? Mm-hmm. 
where the roots are actually extended up and then the branches are in the ground. I believe so. That's the image that was popping up as you're talking about that because, um, you know, in these shamanic realms, it's so fascinating. These <clears throat> higher, quote unquote, higher dimensional energies actually require a three dimensional vessel to be able to live. And so from that perspective, the, the, gross form is the most valuable aspect of creation because it is the vessel it is required for life to even exist it's required for the energetic blueprints to actually move into and through the play of creation without it nothing would exist and so in that sense it's actually the most sanctified realm and beings and energies however you want to frame this you know if you're looking at it from a non-dual place everything is one and it's all trying to live if you're looking at this from like a six-dimensional plane beings are trying to occupy the territory of your psycho-emotional system so that they can live and we've all experienced this with anger with any kind of emotion it wants to live through you we just become identified with them. But when we strip away identity, it's not as though those things cease to exist. We actually just start interacting with them in a completely different way, in a collaborative way. The mystery is figuring out where to actually place identity within that. Because when you start stripping identity away from the things that we have been identified with, like the physical body or the emotions or the ideas, there is something that remains, but it is very difficult to grasp with the mind, but it doesn't mean that you can't access it. In fact, we are all destined to realize that because that is the core essence of who we are. But existing, inhabiting this realm is a divine gift. It is one of the most blessed things in all of creation. It is what gives life to everything that exists. And you were talking about Alexander Lowen. Lowell. Lowen. Lowen. Yeah. Alexander Lowen of Bioenergetics. He talks about how the body contains within it every facet of consciousness. Mm. It is the full memory of everything that has ever happened to your soul exists within the body. And therefore, it is the way that we can actually explore consciousness much more effectively than any other instrument. Mm. And this is also connected to, I just got back from Victoria and I was receiving a myofascial 10-day treatment from um, incredible practitioners. Their company is called I Am Fit, based out of Victoria, BC. And the, the myofascial organ extends throughout the entire body. It's a liquid crystalline matrix that actually surrounds every muscle tissue, every muscle fiber, and it holds the memory of everything that has happened to you physically, mentally, emotionally. Everything that's stored is created in some sort of holding pattern that's reflected throughout the myofascial organ. And as you start ripping it and resetting it, all of these things flood up and out through the system, and that's how it's discharged. So I, I, I can relate to what it is that you're saying because that was actually my perspective for many, many years, and this was probably one of the downsides of my interpretation of the yogic path is that it was really devaluing the human experience as illusion, delusion, and that you actually wanted to reverse your attention away from anything having to do with life mm -hmm. in order to find truth. 
that perspective has dramatically shifted for me as I've stepped into pneumosomatics breath work, as I've stepped into trauma release and working more deeply with these medicines, which fundamentally restructure the entire crystalline vessel that is the, the body. Because this is the most valuable instrument that we could possibly obtain within the entire spectrum of all dimensions because it gives us access to everything. It gives us access to every dimension simultaneously and gives us a way to actually express it in a collaborative fashion. Whereas if we we're occupying a sixth dimensional space, we would need to find some sort of vessel to inhabit in order to express. And this does happen. This is why some people can actually get hijacked by certain narratives, by certain energies, by certain emotions, because we aren't any of those things. We're, we are literally tending a vessel. And if we really start taking the spiritual path seriously, then we turn towards this vessel and we start optimizing it in the same way that we prioritize the interiorized practices like meditation. And we learn how to properly articulate all of the energies that we have access to through this crystalline vessel, because it is a receiving and a transmitting station for the full spectrum of existence. So I don't actually see anything that is existing in the three-dimensional realm as, as being less than. It's just important to recognize the different territory that each of these things occupy because they overlay on top of one another. It's like saying that red is less than blue. Mm. doesn't make any sense, except if you're interpreting it subjectively. I like red better than I like blue. Well, that's great for you, but it doesn't actually mean that red is superior. Mm -hmm. It just means it has a slightly different quality. And unless you understand that, then you won't be able to coordinate your colors. <laughs> <laughs> What's your take on then this, um, the, the, the usefulness of words like masculine, feminine, or even where does gender show up in this? Right. Um, cause I'm curious that, you know, if one is able to dis, disidentify right with any of these, uh, constructs, then how does one, interface then or, or, or willingly participate you know or maybe that's it. it suddenly one realizes like in other talks particularly with queer um guests that they speak about gender as a performance i mean it's just all a performance and so in some ways it feels like this capacity to disidentify with all of the ego constructs and the conditionings around gender frees up the capacity to maybe show up in ways that were previously thought to be um not oneself right and i just wonder how you how do you situate yourself now within these these cultural um expressions uh particularly again and as one who i believe identifies as a man and um and expresses in that regard hmm. it's an interesting question the first thing that came up was uh they're just symbols but that can be interpreted in a whole variety of ways so me incarnating and living in a male body carries with it certain symbolic and energetic imprints. And these things need to be acknowledged because for myself as a man living in this world, I represent something. And what I represent is different from person to person to person, but I definitely represent something as a man 
in these realms. And it also changes, like we were just talking about, it is a very specific crystalline structure that carries with it certain receiving and transmitting potential that is different from a female crystalline vessel. So it doesn't it doesn't matter if you're identified with it or not. It is the vessel that is currently being occupied by consciousness and how you direct the energies in and through it is what matters recognizing that you are functioning as a symbol to others and that it is actually changing your orientation to certain energetic forces but it's up to each individual to discern what their relationship is to those energetic forces and what symbol they are occupying to others but also to themselves because being a man means something to me according to the stories that I'm carrying within my consciousness structure. It doesn't mean that they're true, but they're, they're influencing my thoughts, my emotions, and my behaviors. And I would be a fool to neglect that information as something that I would consider in how to actually step into a more aligned expression of divinity in this world. So this actually comes up quite frequently in the ceremony spaces, particularly working with um, any kind of, well, if you're working with psilocybin, for example, psilocybin tends to take the neurological channels through the default mode network, which is the basically the automated neurological function of your system. It's what's responsible for all of your automatic thoughts. It takes what is localized in your default mode network in your brain, and it redistributes brain activity throughout the entire brain. So it's giving you conscious access to information that was always there, but you weren't accessing previously. Part of the result of this is that you can actually immerse yourself into past experiences you can be taken into memories not just looking at it on a screen but the actual lived experience of it and you're convinced that it is real like you can get activated in an emotional place and in that place everything becomes a symbol of where you were at at that time in your life so if somebody goes into a trauma activation where they were abused by their uncle when they were five, me as a male in the space, in an authoritative position, am going to be a symbol of that energy to that other person. If I don't recognize and acknowledge that in my facilitation of their process, I will be doing a huge disservice to them and will very likely re-traumatize them. So taking into consideration that I am a symbol to others in this masculine form is part of my responsibility as somebody who is holding space for these types of psycho-emotional explorations. But then when I turn that inside of myself, it's, it helps me understand my own programming and my own wounds as a man having to do with the suppression and repression of my emotions and how I relate to power and the healthy expression of anger all of these things are connected deeply with my story of being a man in this world as those things start being stripped away i realize more and more truthfully that i am not a man just as someone inhabiting a female form is not a woman but their crystalline vessel is different than mine and that carries with it its stories 
and that generates certain symbols. And it is their responsibility to recognize and acknowledge the consequence of that on others and on themselves. Until they start doing that, then they'll just be deceiving themselves because this is the world that we live in. We are occupying a certain form, a certain vessel that carries with it certain structures. Hmm. It calls the question for me around, uh, from a cultural lens, how it strikes me as a real achievement for a culture that actually is able to um, communicate or to facilitate experiences um, for its people that uh, helps them to engage, you know, with this. I mean, we talked earlier about the function of rites of passage, right? As you know, a meaningful um, traumatic encounter that traditional cultures um, hold as necessary for this transition from an adolescent to a mature adult. And it strikes me that uh, in this modern culture as well, there's no sanctioned eldering or mentorship in these consciousness realms as well, right? Which seems utterly bizarre um, uh, uh, and at complete tragedy. And of course, that's why so many young people, of course, are doing things and tripping alone or in bad environments or without um, anyone to actually guide them through these spaces. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting thought. I was envisioning like indigenous communities initiating boys into manhood and putting them intentionally into experiences of intensity that really destroy their sense of being alive, like, or at least putting that at risk, but then leading to some sort of triumph or, I don't know, emerging out of like a womb of sorts. Mm -hmm. And when they emerge, they are recognized as a different being. But what I mean by a different being is that they are a different symbol now and that they are going to fulfill the roles and the responsibilities of that symbol within the society, and they have to let go of the old story and to occupy new territory. And that's something that, yeah, I totally agree. We don't really have in our in our culture, in our society. I know that you can find experiences now from individual teachers if you really look for them. Like, you can find them. And they're, they're emerging more and more, I think, because there's a call for that. And I think that was a big part of what I was looking for when I actually left society. I, I didn't know how to, how to actually transition into a meaningful symbol mm. to inhabit a really useful story as a man in the world. Like I, I still don't really know what that means to be a healthy man of integrity in the world. I have my ideas about it. I've had various examples that express certain elements that I find to be virtuous that I try to adopt. But nobody's really taught me that. And I think that's a, a, a huge tragedy, like what you were saying in our culture, because so many of us are just wandering around, kind of lost and confused, trying to piece things together and like, <laughs> like lashing out at other people who threaten our sense of self, like we're not enough or we aren't men or women like what does it mean to be an empowered woman as well like does it mean you have to like strip down and shake naked in front of a group of people and not give a shit about it like is that what it means to be an empowered woman what does it mean to be an empowered man 
does that mean like really catering to and serving women as your primary form and function in this realm? Or does it mean actually leading the charge and putting your stake in the ground and claiming something meaningful and standing by that regardless of the challenge and really just forging through? Is it a balance? What is that balance? Nobody really has the answer to any of these questions, but what I do believe is that rites of passage that challenge our solidified belief system and identity structures and actually force us to deconstruct those things and discover what is underneath of them will help reveal the answer to those questions, which may actually be different for each individual. And I would celebrate that personally. I don't think there's like a standard across the board that everybody could fit into regardless of their gender. I think it's a process of self-discovery of recognizing, realizing, remembering the uniqueness that each of us has to bring and engaging in the processes that really allow us to find those answers within ourselves. I'm just imagining a culture that, you know, Imagine that its sole or one of its main pillars of, of, of intention and purpose was to facilitate that very thing, right? Facilitate the stewardship of consciousness, essentially, among its members uh, into, you know, reaches of exploration and, and creativity and imagination. Like, you know, boggles my mind that, I mean, how entangled we are in endeavors that seem deeply... Um, fraught and and a warped sense of what is meaningful and what is purposeful um and and really lost in this maya right and not the world as it is in a sense uh, with the with the recognition that i i do believe there is a world and it world it needs us actually to participate more meaningfully um in in a, a reciprocal relationship and perhaps the, this is the um the gift of plant medicines right is to as you say this kind of um, wake up, you know, wake up from, from the, the dream or the idea, the identity, the ideas about what is meaningful and not, you know, because she's in trouble in the sense of her capacity to sustain and continue life. And I will say my experience today was a, a, a deep, um, confronting, uh, encounter of which I will be no doubt mm, contending with for some time to come. Before we close our conversation, Yes, I would be uh, remiss to not ask, plead, court you into sharing uh, one of your spoken word pieces, of which we didn't touch on in the conversation, but it remains one of your um, incredible talents. And um, if you'd be so willing, I'd love to leave the listener with a spoken word piece tonight. Mm. Yeah, I'd love to. And uh, just to preface it, it is actually very connected to what we've been chatting about because the thing that led me to spoken word, which I call transformative spoken word, was a result of my exploration in transformative art with Dana Lynn Anderson. So after I took the original course with her in Oregon for two months, I went and took a three-month immersion with her out in Italy to get certified as a facilitator. And my culminating project while I was out there was my first spoken word piece ever. And I didn't intend it wasn't premeditated. I was just really fucking angry 
at the superficiality that I was witnessing in the spiritual presentation of people within this spiritual community. And I had people approaching me in private telling me how depressed they were or how upset they were about certain things, but there was no space for them to actually feel and express that because they had come to an agreement that they were going to only express equanimity in social spaces. And it was just infuriating that all of these spaces that I was going to, all of these spiritual hubs had the same problems as society that I was trying to get away from. And I'm like, where is their space to actually be real? And so I went back to my my room and I just started journaling and it started out just as an angry stream of consciousness thing, but then it started taking on a life of its own and it had a, a cadence to it and a, a rhyming scheme. And then it had a message for me and it was an incredibly transformational experience just writing it all out. And it turned into my culminating project to actually get certified through transformative art. And then when I came back here to Vancouver, I started writing and performing. And that's how actually a lot of people got connected to me here in Vancouver. So that's the preface to this piece. This is the very first one that I wrote when I was out in Italy. I don't think I've ever shared this one with you. And maybe just to warn the listeners, it's quite explicit and can get quite intense. So I just wanted to let you know that, that it does go to some pretty intense places. So if you're really uh, sensitive to um, rage or anger or hostility, um, you might want to tune out now. And if that's the case, then thank you so much for listening up until this point. But for the rest of you, this piece is called, Are You Okay? Is everything okay? Are you okay? Something wrong? You okay? Yeah? You okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? You know, I'm getting pretty sick and tired of people asking that question because nobody really wants the answer, do they? We like to dwell on the surface of things. It's so infuriatingly comfortable there in the land of weather forecasts and the six o'clock news, juicy gossip and fancy new shoes. We glide ever so happily through the days on these clouds of quiet desperation, terrified that someone might look a little too closely and see that below the surface of our calm, cool exterior is this violent thunderstorm of raw human feeling Fuck, you're okay. You're not okay. I'm not okay. I don't want to be okay. I wasn't put here on this planet at this pivotal and tumultuous time just to be okay. I'm a cosmic fucking being made of crystallized light. I'm a totally unique expression of divinity made flesh. I am universal intelligence expressed through all the elements of manifest creation. I have ever existing, ever conscious, ever new and expanding universes flowing through the lifeblood in my veins. And I can feel my swirling galaxies shake the heavens in protest at the thought of being okay. I don't want your okay. I don't want your plastic smile and that voice that rings out three octaves too false. Don't press your face into a carbon mold of happiness to greet me because your eyes don't fit. 
When you smile that smile at me, I want to punch those false teeth right through your face just so some honesty can escape through the opening I just made. Give me truth. I don't want your hollow pleasantries. I don't want your highly refined, endlessly rehearsed and repeated responses. I don't want your eloquently preached discourses of shallow intellectual understanding. I don't want to have to digest the discordant poetic prose that reverberates out of the gaping, cavernous hole of your mouth. Give me truth. I want you to burn to Ashes my fortified walls of ignorance with the blazing inferno of your rage. Eat up my bland and tasteless indifference with the ravenous hunger of your passion. Drown my weighted heart in the unfathomable depths of your sorrow and your love both of which come from the same vast oceanic longing. Carve away my rotting pieces with hatred's cleaver. Scheme your way through the labyrinth of my mechanical disposition with your devious little tricks and spontaneous bursts of playfulness. Steal away my precious sense of reality with your blinding confusion, your mute cries of desperation, and the deafening sound of your loneliness. Sweep me up onto the wild, flowing currents of your irresistible, uncontrollable laughter. Still my endlessly swirling, swerving, twisting, turning thoughts with the immense, unshakable, colossal force of your peace. Cradle my quivering soul in the nurturing embrace of your empathy and compassion. Weave yourself into the fabric of my being with the piercing needle and thread of authentic happiness and joy. Reveal to me everything. Everything. I want to feel things. Don't you? Don't we all? I want to live. I want to live. I want to live. I want to explore and create. I want to crash and burn. I want to bleed, heal, share, lose, cry, laugh, love, engage, retreat, triumph, break, fix, give, and take. I want to breathe life into the day every time I wake up into a world in which I have a personal stake. I want to serve and rule. I want to be kind and cruel. I want to be a wise man and a fucking fool. I want to be a power tool. I want to expand and contract. Learn to keep things intact. Leave something behind for my final act. I want to fly wild and free and root into the depths of my being. I want to watch the world burn and quench thirsty souls like a flood. I want to feel every particle of my being pumping cosmic blood. I want to attain riches and glory and then lose it all to theft. I want to cry out to the heavens with every tear I have left. I want to please with my petals and I want to 
pierce with my thorns. I am a celestial angel with a thousand devil horns. I wasn't born to live up to societal norms. I'm here to transform into what I've longed to become since from before I was born. I want to be more than just some people-pleasing form. My astral home isn't built from the sticks and stones of wrong and right. It's made of boundless color and light with a foundation of emotional purification, energetic transformation, and the stability of depth that comes from ever-unfolding insight. I'm in a vicious, bloody fight for my soul's unshackled, God-given birthright. My courageous, spontaneous combustion of inspiration and trust in my authentic self mercilessly seduces my thoughts, words, and actions with an overwhelming truth-seeking lust. I am made of stardust and as a patriot of my cosmic nation I am waging war on the suppression and repression of untethered truth in every and any form within creation most definitely including your real honest feelings and their expression I feel I feel everything that exists. I feel the lightness and I feel the darkness. I feel all the volcanic bursts of life's ever-changing, rearranging, illuminating cosmic flame. And so do you. But my God, we sure spend a lot of time pretending we don't. Don't we? So don't tell me you're okay, because I see through you. I am the mirror of your soul, and with eyes only for truth, I see the lies that you tell yourself in the world. And I say to you now and forever, reveal to me that which you keep most hidden, tucked away in the secret depths of your soul, and I will love you. Because that which you carry in the innermost part of your being, that which you are most terrified of showing, is beauty ineffable. It is radiant and pure, and as its cascading resplendence shines, it transcends the boundaries of space and time and gives all meaning to this ever-living present moment. So be that. Be exactly who you are. Okay? That perfectly captured our conversation. Des. Thank you for bringing your gifts, brother. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. I love you. <laughs> yes, sir. I love you. Let's keep doing this. <laughs> Part one. Yeah. We out. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Mythic Masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode on your social media. Also, you're invited to join the Mythic Masculine Network 
a growing community of artists, activists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. We're co-creating the emergence of a culture of belonging, oriented around tending the masculine soul. It's a beautiful, intimate platform, and I'd love to have you connected. Visit themythicmasculine.com slash network to learn more.